2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So the basic Christian creed, just to remind you, is Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. If you get that, that is basic Christianity. That is it. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Paul, in this passage, opens, and we talked about this last time, with Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, and God our Father. And we talked about how that is what unites the church. That is what makes us Christian. That confession is what makes us Christian, and it's what unites us together. This is what Christianity is. We also saw last time that the community of faith is the community because of Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, and God our Father. That's what makes us community. We have a common Father, we have a common Savior, and we have a common Lord. That's what makes us community. Now remember the setting as well. Thessalonica is a persecuted church. But it's persecuted by taxation, by... uh, by businesses being shut down, by people being told they can't operate in certain parts of the city, by being told, by being restricted by government policies. This is how they are, uh, this is how they are persecuted. This is the type of persecution they endure. Government oversight and overreach and, and taking from them and requiring taxation for them to meet. They call it a security in the book of Acts. When Acts, if you remember when Paul comes to Thessalonica, he stays for a few nights and then there's a, a mob that tries to drive him out of town and he has to flee at night with Silas. And Timothy gets sent back to Thessalonica to encourage and exhort and teach the brothers there. And so he gets sent back while Paul and Silas are kind of going off on their missionary journey. He takes the first letter to them. He shows up. He encourages and exhorts them. And we see several things that happen in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians, that are answered in 2 Thessalonians. Where he gets answers to prayer in 2 Thessalonians and answers to his exhortation in 2 Thessalonians. We also see that some problems persist in in the first book, in the second book. Uh, One of the key ones that persists, just to give you a heads up, is uh, busybodies. Busybodies who he tells, Paul says, mind your business. He says it. It's It's a straight Christian fact that that phrase is in the Bible. Paul says, mind your own affairs, mind your business, and do work with your hands. In other words, stay busy with your own affairs. Stay busy with your own busyness. This is great. So this is something that Paul is going to continue to talk about. Now, these are 
this is a persecuted church that is when when Paul flees, the leader of this church is taken before the government and they require a guarantee, a guarantee, which means they make him pay a fine saying that Paul is gone. <laughs> Paul's out of here. He causes all kinds of problems. So we're going to make you pay a fine. I always think it's interesting that Paul causes a lot of problems. If you read Paul carefully, and if you read the book of Acts carefully, you'll see Paul was actually a pretty gentle person most of the time. There are some times when he is not gentle, but most of the time he is very gentle. He's very intellectual. He very much debates with people openly. He does not get offended by people. He seems to like when people disagree with him. I relate to this guy. And I don't know why you would be mad at this guy. Because he does the same thing I would do. Which is walk into a place and pick a fight. And then very politely argue with everybody in the room. And then at the end go, this was a great discussion. Let's have some more. And this is a wonderful thing to be. This is who Paul is. But Paul, by nature of being bold for the gospel. And by nature of being intellectually seeking the Lord. And with his heart seeking the Lord, causes strife in cities where they kick him out, where they throw him out of cities. And so I like Paul. He's quiet and he's gentle most of the time. And he's, he's not a great preacher. He's not somebody who stands in front and draws a crowd. He's an intellectual thinker who talks to people and draws a crowd by having people for coffee. In the marketplace. But he, he's not somebody standing up on a soapbox often. Unless there's a soapbox that's already ascribed for him to stand up on. The one who was bold, we often don't think of as bold, was Barnabas. And sometimes Silas. These are the guys that go yelling in the street. Peter. Peter is one who's bold constantly. He's always getting in trouble. But it's because he walks into an area and he yells and screams. John, John is bold. John the Apostle, he's bold. He's tarred and feathered, thrown into, gets exiled to an island because he's so bold. Paul is often gentle and quiet. And the church at Thessalonica is is a quiet church. It's not, they're not doing anything to cause trouble. They're just meeting and worshiping the Lord and they're trying to conform their life to him. And it bothers people. So, one of the first things you ought to remember as we read this letter is if you pursue Christ with all that you are, you are going to bother the world. You are going to bother the world. They're going to look at you and say you should accept things that you're going to say, I can't accept that. They're going to say things to you that they're going to assume that you're going to go along with certain things that you're going to say, I can't go along with that. And you're going to bother them. You're going to bother them sheerly by your existence and worship of Jesus. And praise the Lord when you bother them. Because it means you're doing something right. When the world is bothered by Christians, we are doing something right. Now, that's a basic overview, leaving out a ton, of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians in the context in which we are writing. So, this church has incredible strength of character. And I, think, I, I hope you saw that as we read, that their faith is increasing even amidst persecution. They are growing in righteousness. They are growing in love for one another. They're marked 
by their love for one another. So great is their love that they are marked in other books of the Bible as people who gave out of extreme poverty. They are people who give and love deeply. They hunger and thirst for other people to be and do well. So we see here, this question comes to mind as we read, where does the strength of character come from by which we will withstand the difficulties of life? Where does this strength of character come from by which we will withstand the difficulties of life? So first and foremost, the This strength, as we read last time, comes from God, our Father, and Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So, we see here in verse 2. We're going to pick up in verse 2. We handled verse 1 last time. We're going to pick up in verse 2. Hopefully, we'll get all the way through verse 4. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is a customary greeting. Paul does this almost at the beginning of almost every letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Distinctly here, he's emphasizing the Lord and our God and Father. Our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are one and the same. We talked about this last time. God is Jesus. Jesus is God. Also distinct individuals. Jesus is Lord and Savior. God is Father. They're distinct and yet they are the same. This is Trinitarian language, you're just looking at two members of the Trinity. But grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are from God. They flow out from God's character and who God is. If you want grace and peace in your life, they flow from knowing God and from knowing Jesus. That's where they come from. These are. This is the foundation of grace and and peace. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Grace and peace come from God, and according to James, they don't change. They don't. He does not shift. He does not change. If they are coming from him, they are visible, they are clear. He's the Father of lights. He's the father of all light, so exposing everything, and they come from him to us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 through 18 says, From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God through who." who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has given this to us. They come from God. They come from God. You don't find grace and peace from other areas. Other things will not bring you peace. Other things will not not bring you peace. It's from God. You want peace? You want grace? It's from God. God, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, which is just beautiful. You should have this memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no man may boast. This is a gift from God. The grace and faith is from God. It is a gift from Him. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, implores us to make your requests known to God, and the peace of God 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 this morning, that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God because of that justification. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus made peace with us, between us and God, on the cross. Because peace has been made by Jesus Christ and His blood. Because we have peace with God, we get grace from God, and we get peace from God. So we get grace and peace. Now, let's think about what these words mean. Grace. First, let's think about what He means by grace. Look at it first as a blessing. Something that is given to you. Grace first as a blessing. And and the general grace that we first must think about is life itself. You are permitted to breathe because God is gracious. You are permitted to breathe because God is gracious. Take a breath, everybody. You do that several times a day involuntary. You breathe involuntary. It's not something, it's an involuntary reaction. Your breath. You don't have to sit there and think about it. Now, there are times when you have to stop and actually take a deep breath. But even those times, you are awake enough to take the deep breath. Your body is naturally designed to breathe. That is a common grace given by God. You breathe and live on this earth, common grace given by God. Then there is grace of salvation, also given by God. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again that you would have life and then have life eternal, that your sins would be buried with him in his death and that you would be raised to walk a new life with him in his resurrection. This is grace given by God to you. And that's a blessing to you. In 2 Thessalonians, that's, what more can this mean? In 2 Thessalonians verse, uh, 1, verse 11 and 12. Let's read that. It says, To this end we always pray for you that... God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Using that same formula, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, he is using that same formula. He says grace comes from him to make you worthy. You see, to make you worthy. This is what that grace does. This is the blessing of grace, that you would be worthy. God makes you worthy or able to withstand is another way to think about worthy. In particular, in this context where he's talking about being persecuted for righteousness, this is the able to withstand is the idea of worthy. And he says, look there, he also says, may God fulfill every resolve for good or every desire for good. Whose desire for good there? It's God's desire for good. God will fulfill every desire for good for every good work of faith for you. So God gives you grace and then he makes you worthy. He fulfills every desire for good. And then we have this, God may fulfill every work of faith by his power. Did you see that? There at the end of verse 11, that God would fulfill every work of faith by his power. So God grants you grace, making you worthy and then fulfilling the work 
doing the work for that which is good and doing the work of good faith work. Faith work, by the way, that's, that's a disciplined faith and growth in Christ. That's the work of faith that is done in you by God, making you stronger. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's all His working inside you and it plays out in your working of the hands. The heart directs the hands, right? This is out of the overflow of the, how, the, the mouth, <laughs> out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so your hands act out of the overflow of your heart. Your heart is changed by Jesus. Faith is input into you and it acts itself out in your deeds, in your works, your works. You are doing those. In your good deeds, you prove the faith that God has placed in you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, if you look over there, it says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, there's the same rhythm again, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So we get eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Eternal comfort and good hope. I love that he clarifies that as good hope. As if that needs to be clarified. Good hope. Not just hope. Not just plain hope. But good hope. Actual good hefty hope. And we'll look at that when we get to that passage. But here we've got good hope through grace. So you get eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and deed. So God gives grace of comfort amidst difficulties. Comforting your heart and establishing you in every good work. You as a Christian, you can do good. I think we sometimes forget that while we used to be unrighteous, unsaved, unable to do any good deed, our hearts being conformed in Christ have changed us. And now you are able to follow Christ. And in Christ you are able and through Christ you are able to do good. Not only are you able to, but the Bible calls you to do it and tells you this is what Christians are. We do good. We do good in a world that tells us we can't. In a world that tries to say that we're unable. We do good. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 24. The heart rules the hands. The heart rules the hands. But I want you to understand something as well. The hands help to shape the mind. The heart rules the hands. The hands help to shape the mind. We know where our heart is because God has done the work and changed our hearts. He has rescued us from darkness. He has changed who we are at our core and our hearts are changed. Therefore, our hands are able to do good. Now, there are times when you don't want to do good because your mind is not in the right space. But what does the Word of God say? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Come on, give it to me. By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind, you use your hands to, to alter your mind. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians as well. He talks about soul, spirit, and body. 
right? The three philosophical ideologies he uses there to describe who we are, soul, spirit, and body. Spirit, distinctly Christian, that which the Lord has given. You could argue soul there, the word of the use, the use of the word soul there in 1 Thessalonians, indicating the mind, what we would call the mind. Mind, heart, body. We would call that the mind. It's the thing that is alterable, that is adjustable by your efforts that you can input things into and it will change. As opposed to the heart, which is only changeable by God. But we take our hands and we do what is necessary to get our minds in the right space. Renewing our minds by the word of the Lord. Ephesians says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, think on these things. And then Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, set your minds on the things that are above. We are to have an eternal perspective. We are to make our minds concentrate on things so that the grace of God would extend not just from our hearts to our hands, but also from our hands into our brains, into our minds, that we would change the way we're we're approaching things. So sometimes you don't want to worship the Lord. Sometimes you don't want to worship. Sometimes you don't want to kneel down and pray. Use your hands to do it anyway. Sometimes we don't want to obey. Lord, sometimes I don't want to pray without ceasing. I discipline my hands that my mind would change and my attitude would change. And I would find myself longing more and more from my heart and my mind. What's it, Paul? We've been reading 1 Corinthians. What's it, Paul, say about prayer? There, praying in a angelic tongue and he's talking about prayer and he says I will pray with the tongue but I will also pray with my mind so that I'm not unfruitful I will engage my mind with my heart even if my heart is is wildly out there and I don't understand what's going on and I don't understand what's coming out of me I will pray with my mind and I will engage with my mind as well there are times when you don't feel like kneeling before the Lord kneel anyway Bring your hands in line with the heart that he has already given you and that he has stated in Scripture. And then bring your mind into conformity by those actions with your hands. Because that is living a full Christian life. So we see what grace is. Now we see what, let's look at what grace does. First, grace gives life to the dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Beautiful passage. It gives life to the dead. Second, It changes me. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, it says, By the grace of God, I am who I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, any of the apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. So for Paul, Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the changed life that he has as a result of Jesus. And he says here, The the grace of God has made him who he is. He finds his identity in that grace. Second, grace was purposeful. It wasn't just grace that showed him who he was, but it's grace that changed the way he lived. He worked harder than anyone because of the grace of God in him. And then third, grace works within and alongside him. Grace works within him, changing who he is, but it also works alongside him. He works 
with his hands to fulfill the word of God and to, to preach the gospel. And it's by the grace of God that he's able to do that. So we've got this threefold change in him where his identity is changed, his hands are changed, and his mind is changed. And he's changed completely by grace. Grace changes me. And then third, grace strengthens me. Think about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, Be strengthened by the grace of God. Strengthened. Inner strength comes from grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's grace. Grace changes me. Grace is what alters me. It changes me. Grace comes from God and it changes who I am. Second, what is peace? Think about peace as a blessing because he's giving peace as a blessing. May grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is peace? Clearly, peace is not freedom from all storms in life. I just want to be clear. Clearly, peace is not Freedom from all circumstantial storms in life. Every church Paul writes to has storms. And every church he writes to, he wishes grace and peace upon them. Peace is not freedom from circumstantial difficulties. That's not the limit of what peace is. Peace is not always freedom from storms. Often, peace is given simultaneous to storms. Remember the psalm. Hold close. Hold fast to that psalm that says, you lift me up from the miry pit and what? Put me on a rock. It does not say, you lift me up from the miry pit and then take all the storms away. It says, you lift me from the miry pit and put me on a rock And the presumption is that everything is still going crazy around you, but you've got a firm foundation. And you won't be shaken. The Lord is my rock and my salvation. He is my foundation. I will not be shaken. That's beautiful. Psalm 62, right? This is gorgeous poetry. That he is my rock on whom I stand. So clearly it's not something that you are removed from all storms. Second, peace is not something attained by men. Peace is not something you can attain by reading self-help books or by getting your mind in the right place or by going through therapy. Peace does not get attained by those things. Those th- don't get me wrong. Those things aren't bad. They are not the foundation of peace. A man cannot have peace without Jesus. There's no way. Oh, they can hide it. And they can look like they can, they can handle chaos really, really well. Psychologists are great at it. I know all the tricks. I read the books. They're fantastic. They're, those books give you some tools and tricks to help manipulate your own brain so that you feel like you're doing fine. They're, they're wonderful. They're wonderful tools. And yet they are not adequate to give you peace. That only comes from God. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 17, that man, even the religious elite, have no peace. They have not known peace. Everybody is without peace. Peace is also not found in license or legalism. It's important that we point that out. Peace is not found in doing whatever comes to mind and making you feel good. That's not where peace is found. And peace is also not found in restricting all pleasure. And saying there is no joy for you to have in life. Either extreme of those is anti-Jesus. 
either extreme of those is anti-Jesus. When you go to legalism or license, which are the opposite extremes of the spectrum, you reject Jesus. And that's not to say Jesus is a middle way. No. Both of those need to be cast off completely. He is the way. He's not a middle way. There's not, this isn't a, well, I don't want to be too legalistic and I don't want to be too licentious. I just want to be somewhere in the middle. No, both of those are bad. Don't, you don't want to be in either one of those, even a little. You want to be following Jesus because it's delight and joy. In, a, in opposition to legalism, Jesus is not a clipboard. Jesus is not a clipboard in opposition to legalism. Whenever you find yourself making a list of clipboard rules that you have to obey in order to hear from Jesus, you are missing the point. Jesus is a master who you love and want to know deeply and follow because he is your master. It's not legalism. It's delight. License is the reverse, right? License is anything that feels good. I want to go do it. So I let my feelings, my heart, my 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 base desires lead me in everything. And that never goes well. Just look all through history. It never goes well. It does not go well. But the supreme delight is Jesus Christ. Just cast off your baser instincts and, and follow Christ hard and you'll find he's the supreme delight of life altogether. He's the one that has joy. For goodness sakes, study the word happy in the Bible or blessed. Right? We, we have a trouble... As English people translating that word happy, it means happy. Makarios is the word in scripture. It means happy. It's, it's happy. And it means exactly what you think when you think happy. But we translate it blessed because surely, surely we're deeper than just happy. No, you're not. You're not deeper than happy. You are a human being. Happy is an important word. You need to learn to embrace it. It's used all throughout scripture. Blessed are those who trust in Christ Jesus. Happy. Happy are those who trust in Christ Jesus. Happiness matters. It is found in Jesus, not in license, not in freedom. It is found entirely in him, entirely and totally in him. So we don't want to go to legalism. We don't want to go to license. Those do not bring peace. Abandonment of holiness does not bring peace. And extreme discipline does not bring peace. Peace comes when Christ, first and foremost, when Christ defeats the enemy of sin and death. And he brings near those who were far away. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. When he brings near those who are far away, when he brings those who were not his own to be his own. Peace is the end goal. Peace is the end goal of God's relationship with you. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. God of peace will crush him. So what type of peace is Paul talking about? A circumstantial or an internal ethereal peace? One or the other. Is he talking about circumstantial peace? I think you can argue yes in some senses. And is he talking about internal ethereal peace? Yes, I think you can argue. Like any good theological question, the answer should be yes here. Whenever you're given an if, this, or this. Remember, when you're given a this or this, there's three answers. This one, A, B, or yes, right? Who, you know, the question of regeneration. Did the Spirit regenerate you first, or did you believe in Jesus? Yes. Yes. Uh, and, you know, there's an argument to be made theologically, but that's not what this sermon's on, so we're going to keep moving. Um, but here we have circumstantial peace 
or internal peace? Could it mean that he does circumstantial peace? So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, if you jump down, it says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way or in every circumstance, in every, every conceivable manner. May he give you peace at all times in every way. So yes, it is circumstantial to some extent. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, we were urged to live a peaceful life. Verse chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And aspire to live quietly or peacefully and to mind your own affairs. I love that. Mind your own business. That's what he said just then. Mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Peace is, yes, circumstantial in that sense that you are to mind your own affairs and that you are to uh, work with your hands. This indicates a desire to live in circumstantial peace with where we are. So you are to be at peace circumstantially. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. You should write that down if you don't know it. This is a key verse to understanding conflict resolution and how we interact with each other insofar as it depends on you. So as much as you can, you live at peace with all people. I love that first phrase because it indicates that you will not always be able to live at peace with all people and it won't be your fault. That there are sometimes people that you just can't be at peace with for whatever reason. But as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So get this. First, it's okay if you're not at peace with everybody. It's okay. Second, insofar as it depends on you, though, you work for peace. You work for peace. Second Timothy, I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 urges us, as we looked at earlier, pray for your leaders that you might live a peaceful and quiet life. So maybe he means circumstantial peace, but he means circumstantial peace in the midst of turmoil. Circumstantial peace in the midst of turmoil. That radical peace that passes all understanding that only Christians can get. That that peace that surpasses understanding, that, that is peace amidst turmoil, but it is circumstantial peace. We pray for our leaders that they would make wise decisions and get this, leave us alone. That's, that's what we're praying for. That we would live a peaceful and quiet life because the government's not laying down additional taxes and weight on Christians. That's why we pray for our leaders. That's why we pray they would repent and believe in Jesus. That's one of the reasons. We also want to see brothers and sisters come to know the Lord. But we pray that they would have uh, wisdom in their leadership, that we would live a peaceful and quiet life. So second, this could be internal peace that he's talking about here. And, and I think that that's a given, right? We like to spiritualize things because then we don't have to explain God doing things. I just want to, as an aside, let's... I wasn't going to do this, but as an aside, let's, let's take this just as an aside. If, the, the world is, is a mess, the world is messy, and it does not like Christians. It doesn't like Christians. And so one of the things we like to do as Christians is theologize away God's work. Like to theologize away God's work. God says, pray for your leaders that you would live a peaceful and quiet life. That's in the scripture. He tells us to do it. So we pray for leaders that we would have a peaceful and quiet life, 
And then when we don't have a peaceful and quiet life, instead of continuing to pray and remain faithful, we begin to excuse that and go, well, this is an internal peace, an internal peace, not an external peace. So clearly God doesn't have to answer this. And we theologize away the demand that God has made on his people to pray and seek his face. That is a dangerous place to be. In the Old Testament, it says, bother me. Do not cease praying until you see me come. That's what he says. Habakkuk says, I will remain a watchman on the wall waiting for you. Praying for you. Praying that the Lord would come. I will wait and I will watch all this injustice and I will pray for you to come. We are commissioned as Christians to labor in prayer, in faithful obedience to the Lord, and in good works on this earth. Don't theologize those away simply because things look rough in a moment. Don't theologize those away because they look rough in a moment. Those are things we are called to do. There are things we are to pursue and things we are to do. God is vast and amazing. And to think deeply about him is a privilege. But you are also given commands to, to remain steadfast and faithful. As we see the church in Thessalonica has done, we are to remain steadfast and faithful amidst persecution, knowing that he will bring peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. He will bring peace and it will be peace everlasting and we are called to pray and press forward in this earth to make the earth a better place because of the presence of Christians. Titus explains that we are supposed to be the best citizens on the planet. That Christians are the best citizens. All through church history the argument is made that because we love Jesus and we love people we are the greatest and strongest citizens a society can possibly have. Atheists make that argument in church history. People who don't even believe in Jesus recognize that these Christians are beneficial to society. This is who we are. Don't theologize away God because things get hard. No, lean harder into Him. Pray harder. Be more disciplined. Pursue Him with more, more effort. Delight all the more in his presence. But back to our concept. Can this peace be internal? Yes, it can be internal. Galatians 5.22. It's a fruit of the spirit to have peace. Philippians 4.7 was written in prison. When he says, make your requests be known. Make your requests known to God by prayer and supplication. Make your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is written from prison. So yes, it is eternal, internal, as well as external. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Again, written from prison. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, we read that the peace of God sanctifies you. So peace is internal, and it affects the external. The heart affects the hands. The hands work to change the mind. The mind leads the hands as well. So you have these, these pictures of peace. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 promises that he will give perfect peace for the mind that is stayed on him. 
He gives perfect peace to the mind that has stayed on him. So in light of this blessing here of grace and peace from God, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, we ought always... That was fun, right? Long time on one verse. There is so much for you to dig in Scripture. There's so much for you to dig out in Scripture. We scratch the surface in sermons. We scratch the surface, but God gives pastors and leaders and teachers an additional grace, which we call the cutting room floor. This is an aside, by the way. We call the cutting room floor, which means we have studied this passage, and there's so much more to be had here. There's word choice and and position, and and there is depth of cross-references that you can't possibly fathom without sitting down to do it, And, and yet a ton of that gets left on the cutting room floor which means delight for me and for you. And so I want to encourage you, when you study Scripture, sometimes things are just given to you. Sometimes things are just given to you. Now let's go verse 3. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you is increasing for one another. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So they are enduring persecution and affliction. And in light of these blessings, grace and peace coming from God to them, understand that that, that has been answered. It's been answered in them because they're steadfast and they're increasing in love. The prayers for grace and peace to them that he gave in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he is seeing as he writes 2 Thessalonians. How beautiful is that, that we get to see two letters to the same church written in short proximity from each other where God has already answered the first one. This is beautiful. In the, in the first book, he already prayed that they would have increase and abound in love. That he already prayed that they would increase and abound in love in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. I mean, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 is an answer to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Where he prayed that God would give them increasing love abounding in them. So first, we always ought to give thanks, right? As a result of the blessings of grace and faith, we are grace and and peace, we always give thanks. And then second, we boast about one another. We boast. There's a good kind of boasting and a bad kind of boasting. This is the good kind. We boast about one another. So we've got giving thanks and boasting. Note first that he says we ought always, or we should always, or as is fitting. This is something that is right and worthy to do. It's the same word that's used over in verse 11 when it says God will make you worthy. It's worthy. This is a worthy thing to do. We give thanks always because it is right or fitting or worthy to do so. So gratitude to God for faith of others is fitting or worthy. It's fitting or worthy. The same word is used in, in uh, 1 verse 5 and in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. It's this word of fitting or appropriate. It is appropriate and right for us to give thanks to God for one another. Application for you is how often do you give thanks for other Christians' faith? 
How often do you give thanks for other Christian faith? If you don't give thanks often, and that was convicting, start now. It's not hard. All you have to do is when somebody comes to your mind, thank the Lord for them. It is so easy to develop and cultivate this positive habit of giving thanks to God for others. I thank God constantly for you all in my prayers. You know this because you sometimes get texts going, hey, thanking God for you today, prayed for you just now. You know this because I tell you, you should also tell one another. You should also tell one another, I thank God for you. Paul models this for us. We ought to give thanks to God for one another. We ought to give thanks to God. Why? Because it is fitting. We have an obligation to thank God for the faith of others that is growing and increasing. This is what he's getting at here when he says that we ought to. This is right to do so. Without grace and peace from God, faith cannot increase and love cannot abound. Without grace and peace from God, faith cannot increase and love cannot abound. So we begin our prayers for one another that grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ would abound in us. And then we thank God for one another. So faith increases by God's grace. This is how when we give thanks for the faith of others, we are giving thanks for the grace of God being put in their life. Faith increases by God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 through 7 shows us God gives growth to the work. Apollos watered, Paul watered, Paul built the foundation. All those, you've heard this, right? Can I not? Yeah. The Paul watered, uh, Paul, uh, Apollos preached, Paul watered. God gives the growth, right? This is the growth that God gives. It comes from God. Mark chapter 9, verse 24, when the, we say this all the time when we do our impossible prayers here, which uh, is where we pray for things that we are not certain of or that we have trouble believing that God is going to do. We quote this verse, Mark chapter 9, verse 24, where the man comes and says, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That is a testimony to God's grace in that guy's life increasing his faith. He's asking him to increase his faith. In Luke chapter 17, verse 25, what does he ask? What does the man ask? Lord, increase our faith. That's what the disciples ask. Increase our faith because increasing your faith comes from grace and peace from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, faith is a gift, so it must be increased by God's grace and by God's hands. In Philippians, faith is often granted alongside suffering. Faith is often granted alongside suffering. People suffer and their faith increases. So we ought to logically ask or find ways in which we can connect with suffering. That's a fun one for us to ruminate on, isn't it? We ought to seek grace from God in all circumstances. And when faith increases, it will most often increase in and through difficulty and suffering. Love abounds also because of God's movement. First Thessalonians 4 through 9, I mean 4 verse 9 says that he, God has taught them in love. Their love abounds because God has taught them how to love one another. Love is an answer to prayer. This increasing love that they have for one another is an answer to prayer. So verse 3, when he says their faith is growing and abundantly and their love for every one of you 
for each other is increasing. This is an answer to the very prayer from the first book. Prayer matters. Pray that you would abound in love. This is the answer to it. May the God, may God grant you to abound in love. So we've got this first one. We ought to give thanks always for increasing faith and increasing love. And then we boast to other churches. Now, there's two types of boasting. There's selfish, sinful, prideful boasting. that says, I am awesome. And the Bible's very clear. You're not. So when we stand up and do that kind of boasting, it's always wrong. Christ, Paul says, I will make my boast in Christ alone. No pedigree, no education, no, no background, though I have reason to boast. He says, I am a Benjamin. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I obey. I was zealous for the law. And according to the law, I was blameless. Can you imagine being able to claim that you were blameless according to the law? Paul does so. He claims that he was blameless according to the law. But then he says, everything I did, all my works were worthless. They were worthless before the Lord. They were worthless in, in comparison to who he is. And I make my boast in him and in him alone. That's it. All my pedigree is thrown out the window. All my skills as an orator, all my education, everything about me is tossed aside. Everything that's me is gone. The only thing that matters is Christ. And I am boasting in his grace and his mercy and all that he does through me and through, through me into my hands. All my work is based on his grace in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Right? So he says, this is grace from God. That's, that's appropriate boasting. Boasting in Christ. There's a boasting here that seems appropriate too. Boasting in others. Boasting in the steadfast faith of others. Boasting in the endurance of others. You can boast in the endurance of faithful Christians. You can Tell other churches about the greatness of the church that you're in. It will not take you long to be around me for long before you will hear me start speaking about how great Sovereign Grace Fellowship is. Which is what you want in a pastor or a member at a church. In the local church, you want your pastor to actually think your church is good. So I'm going to defend this as a good thing. You will find very quickly that I will boast about you in a heartbeat. I will boast about my fellow Christians across the country who are faithful to the Lord to work in their small congregations. This is a good thing. Why? Because they are steadfast in endurance and faith. And my boast in them is that Jesus, look at what Jesus has done in them. Look at what Jesus is doing in them. Look at what Jesus has done in their, in their heart and in their life and how they are steadfast and faithful. We boast in others. Our boast is done in the work of Christ in others, not focusing on what they do differently from others, but emphasizing what they do well in Christ. Note that he doesn't say, I boast about you because you're doing things better than these other churches. That's not what he says. What he says is, I boast about you for your steadfastness and your endurance. It is an emphasis on who they are, on who they are in Christ that he's boasting in. He is boasting in who they are. There is an appropriate way to boast. We boast in who Christ is and what he has done. Appropriate boasting is not done over others, but about others. Appropriate boasting is not done over others, as in ours is better than yours. Ha ha ha. That's over others. 
Appropriate boasting is done about others. Look at how great this is. Look at what's happened here. Look at what's going on here. Look at what they do here. Look at this church. Look at how much they love the Lord. Look at how much they serve the Lord. Look at how much they've changed. Look at how much they've grown. That's appropriate. What this boast is about is steadfastness and faith. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So the boasting is about their steadfastness and faith and the endurance of that faith. Their thanking and their gratitude is for love and for is for love and for the increasing faith that God gives them. So their faith increases and they love. So we thank God for that. And then we boast that look at how much they are enduring. Look at the strength of these. This is why you read the books of the martyrs. This is why you read Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is why you read books like uh, Tortured for Christ by Richard Vernbrand. This is why you read these books because we can exalt and rejoice in the steadfast faith of our brothers. This is why you read those books. They will inspire the soul. They will inspire the soul to press on. The basis of our boast is the steadfast faith accorded to us according through the grace and through, sorry, the steadfast, the boast, our boast on others is on their steadfast faith according to us or accorded to us through the grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are rejoicing in the fellowship of faith because of the grace and peace given to us by God. We are increasing in faith and we thank God for it because of the grace and peace given to us from God. We are increasing in love for one another because of the grace and peace given to us by God. And so we thank him for those things and we boast in the power of the cross to overcome every circumstance and give us peace. This is Christianity. This is not just simple Christianity, but this is wartime lifestyle Christianity. Oh, learn to cultivate this, Christian. Learn to cultivate gratitude for increasing faith and abounding love. Learn to cultivate gratitude for other Christians' faith. Learn to cultivate a steadfastness and an endurance and a confidence in what Christ has done. Press on to trust in the Lord Jesus in all places with all things. Lord, we trust you in everything. We know that you have given us grace to live through all circumstance. 